We'll grab your Bible again and let's turn back to the book of Philippians and we will jump in with both feet here as we uh, seek to finish the section that we're in in uh, Philippians chapter 2 verses uh, 5 to 11. I'd like to offer just a little bit of review for those of you that may not have been here because this section today won't make a whole lot of sense uh, unless you've been tracking with us. Uh, so just um, if you want to turn in your Bible to Philippians chapter 2 and you can uh, follow along as we, uh, we look at where we've been and then where we're going today. Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, as he sits in prison, that's where he is as he writes the letter to the Philippians, um, is writing, and in chapter 2, he has uh, kind of started a new paragraph of discussion on uh, how the Philippians should be interacting with one another. And uh, he says in verse 3, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. And do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Uh, and that, that command, that admonition comes on the heels of the first two verses that really make the point that how we treat one another is an example and a testimony to the lost world around us. Uh, I don't know if you think about that, but, but every minute of our lives, we are a living, breathing advertisement for the gospel. And how we treat one another, how we treat unbelievers, how we treat our spouses, our children... Uh, especially how we treat our brothers and sisters in a church, either give credibility to the gospel or in some way they demean the gospel. Now, uh, again, a footnote on that. We're we're not saying that that there's a possibility of perfection. We know that we're a church of progressively growing sinners, but nonetheless we still struggle with sin, as Terry's been talking about in 1 John. So, so don't think that if we fall short of perfection, we've somehow failed. No, no, no. What God is looking for is an authentic example, a real example, that as we grow and change in Christ, even when we sin, if, if we respond to sin the way we're supposed to, even that puts the gospel on display, doesn't it? If you get at odds with somebody in this room and instead of just leaving the church or uh, not speaking to that person or finding a new group of friends, if, if you reject that, instead do the hard work of humbling yourself and reconciling and seeking and granting forgiveness and working it out with that person, that puts the gospel on display, doesn't it? Because the gospel is about reconciliation. It's about forgiveness. It's about confession. So even when we sin, that's an opportunity to bring credibility to the gospel as we respond the way God would want us to do in that situation. So, so that's sort of the context of what Paul is talking about here. To think about how we act with one another. He says in verse 2, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And then he goes into the section about really not being selfish, but considering others as more important. Um, that's hard to do, isn't it? Um, most of us uh, come into marriage, come into parenting, come into ministry to parents and family, uh, come into friendships uh, with, with, with advanced degrees in selfishness, right? Right? Isn't that where we live? It's where I live. And so dying to ourself and considering others as more important um, is a great challenge, and yet 
we have, we have opportunities every day to work on that, and those are really opportunities not just to grow to be more like Christ, but to bring credibility and authenticity to the gospel itself. So as we parachute into this section this morning, remember that that's the context. The context of what we're about to look at is, is this issue of considering one another as more important than yourself, being an example to one another and to a lost and watching world. Now, the second thing that we talked about last time is in verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, what attitude is that? What attitude is that? This goes back to the previous verses that we would consider others as more important than ourselves, that we would do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, that we would look out for the interests of others and not just our own interests. That attitude is what we are to model as we follow Christ. What is the supreme example, the supreme demonstration of Christ's humility, of his selflessness? Um, Well, we're going to see that example in verses 5 and following. This is what we talked about last time, so this is is just review, okay? So last time, here's what we saw. The supreme demonstration of Christ's example, the text says, though he existed in the form of God. That that means, basically, that Jesus was God. He, He... he was the same as God. And, he, and yet he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now this is where we need to get very, very careful so we don't end up in heresy land here. What that means is Jesus was willing to give up his quote-unquote equality with God. And we say, whoa, wait a minute, that, that sounds really scary. Okay, So we need to be very, very careful. In what sense was Jesus not grasping to or clinging and hanging on to equality with God, but something he was willing to give up? Not his deity, not his divine attributes. Yeah, Becky was listening last week. That's good. All right. Hope some of the rest of you were. Yeah, he was not giving up his deity, not giving up his divine attributes, not giving up anything in his godness. But what was he willing to give up? What's that? His exalted position. His exalted position. You can picture Jesus sitting at the right hand of his father, and, and he gets up, as it were, and he makes the long descent to the earth, not to a palace on earth, but to a manger. And the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the the one who sat in the exalted position at the right hand of God, reflecting and displaying His glory, who had always been there, who had always enjoyed that position as the Son, who was always, always exalted with His Father, now humbles Himself, and takes on human flesh and becomes a baby. Before that, becomes a zygote and comes into the world as a human being. 100% God added to 100% man at the same time in the same person. It means... He emptied himself. He gave up that exalted position with God the Father. Okay, Why did he do that? Remember, emptied himself. People get all bent out of shape about what emptied. Okay? Not, not his deity, not his glory, not his, uh, not his godness. What he's giving up, what he's emptying himself of 
is that exalted position with God the Father. And, and we know that. We don't have to... I said this last week, but I'll say it again. When you come to hard verses in the Bible, don't start guessing. And to some extent, don't start going all over the rest of the Bible to try to explain it. It is true that Scripture interprets Scripture, and that's one of the the fail-safe checks of Bible interpretation. But usually the clues that help you to know what a verse means are right there in the context. The context is always the ultimate determiner of meaning in Scripture. And then, of course, once we figure that out, then we want to look at the rest of the Bible and make sure that the rest of the Bible agrees. Absolutely. This whole section is about humility. This whole section is about not not taking your position, but being willing to humble yourself in order to better another person. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He gave up that exalted position in order to humble himself, in order to better eternally all of us by becoming the great God-man so he could live in our place, die the death that we should have lived so that he could bring us to God. So he emptied himself by giving up that exalted position with God the Father in order to, look what it says, take the form of a slave. That was the lowliest position. That, um, he didn't take the form of a king. He didn't take the, the form of a ruler. He didn't take the form of a priest or a rabbi or a Pharisee or even some religious leader. He became a slave, the scripture tells us. The lowliest position. He was made in the likeness of men, the, the next verse tells us. Jesus took on human nature. That's what that means. And thirdly, he was found in appearance as a man. Those three clauses explain what it means that he emptied himself. And when he was found in appearance as a man, that sounds like just what it sounds like, uh, including the outward form of human nature. In other words, he had a human body. And just to underline it, highlight it, start and circle it, he did not give up his deity or any of his divine attributes. He was, as I tell my kids, 100% God, 100% man, at the same time, in the same person. Okay, so far so good. Kind of bring us up to speed there. Okay, so so what does that mean? Let's kind of summarize this here, okay? Uh, um I'm sorry, well, let's do this first. He humbled himself, secondly, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Uh, this little verse tells us to what extent Jesus humbled himself. Um, hold your place there, and let me show you something in Romans 5 real quick. Romans chapter 5, you, 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 guys, you guys know this here. Um, Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. Verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. What, what is he saying there? God demonstrates in the ultimate supreme way, what is the ultimate way to show love, is the argument of Paul. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. You see what he's saying there? 
that, that the demonstrate the ultimate demonstrations of God's love is that he would humble himself and go to the cross to stand in the place of sinners. Go back to Philippians there. So he humbles himself to the point, to the extent, by becoming not just a man, not just uh, the God-man on earth, but even putting himself in the place of sinners to die their death on the cross. This was three things. First, the ultimate act of humility, the Son of God dying in the place of sinners. The ultimate humiliation, crucifixion as a criminal. It didn't get any worse than that in terms of humiliation. And thirdly, it was the main reason Jesus became the God-man. The atonement required that Jesus be both a man and God. He had to be a man in order to be our substitute. He had to be God in order to offer a perfect sacrifice. So if we summarize this now, the kenosis, and all of you should be familiar with that term now, and not to you know give you whiz-bang, $100 theological words, but because you're going to read it. You're going to hear it as, as you listen to sermons, as you read Christian books. Um, the kenosis is the word in Greek that we see in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, emptied. That's where that word comes from. And so when theologians talk about the kenosis, they're talking about Jesus humbling himself, um, coming down from that exalted position, taking on human nature, and being the God-man so that he could save us from our sins. That's what that means. So Jesus gave up his exalted position that he enjoyed with God the Father and God the Spirit in order to come to earth, take on human nature and flesh, and then assume the humble role as a slave in order to die as the substitute for sinful humanity. Okay, does that all make sense? That's all review. Are you with me on that? Let's watch now, uh, coming back to some, some uh, new stuff in the text that we haven't talked about yet. Let's watch, finally, the Father's response. The Father's response. So the Son humbles himself. He, he uh, uh, gives up that exalted position. He comes to earth. He takes on humanity. He's the God-man. He lives and dies in the place of sinners. How does the Father respond? Look at verse 9. Therefore, therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I love this section. Let's, uh, let's unpack it together. First, this reason also God highly exalted him. What's being talked about there? What is being talked about is what is commonly known as the ascension. The ascension. Who can tell me what the ascension is? Yes. Okay. You're, you're half right. You're half right. Yes. Jesus comes to the earth. Okay, he becomes a man. That's called the incarnation. He dies on the cross. That's called the crucifixion. Right? He rises from the dead. That's called the resurrection. And then several days later, after he appeared to several thousand people in his in his in his body, people could see, you know, he really physically rose from the dead. What did he do? He ascended back to heaven. Okay, So what Paul is alluding to here is the ascension, where Jesus goes back to heaven. 
And this, again, it's so fun to see how this whole text comes together because he gives up the exalted position. He comes to the earth as a slave to die in our place. But he, he doesn't, that the story doesn't end with a dead Savior. Do you understand that? And that's why Easter is the highlight of our year. God raises him from the dead on the third day. He shows, amongst other things, that Jesus accomplished that work of redemption. The resurrection is, is an example. It's, it's evidence that Jesus really did conquer the grave, and he conquered death, and he conquered it. He came and completed what he was here to do. But the Father doesn't just say, okay, well now he's risen from the dead, this is great. The Father says, now you get your exalted position back. And, and I want you to see how, how the ascension, and I don't know about you, have you ever heard, other than someone going through maybe the Gospels and, or, or in the book of Acts, you ever heard a series on the ascension? I don't know that I ever have, and it's, it's one of those things where you don't really come across it to go, oh, wow. But, but this, this is all about, really, the significance of the ascension. The ascension is actually a key to our faith and walk with God today. It really is. And, and I'm going to hope, hopefully prove that to you today. But that's what he's talking about. The ascension, the Father restores Jesus' exalted position at the Father's right hand. Now, I want to show you this. I, I told you this last time, and we may or may not get through this, but um, warm up your hands. We're going to blow through like 20 Bible verses in 10 minutes, okay? And That's tricky with Jesus, but hopefully I'll, I'll tie it in along the way, okay? She's, she was asking if the ascension is the same as glorification with Jesus, and, and it's yes and no is the answer. So, okay, if going from passage to passage frustrates you, just close your Bible and listen, okay? just say, I don't want you to be frustrated. But if you're like, yeah, get me in the text, Keith, then, then put your, put your seatbelts on and let's jump in. Look at John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Because... Paul is not the first person to talk about this. Paul is not the first person to say, Jesus gives up his position, comes down, comes a man, and then he goes back up to that position. No, this is all throughout the Gospels, if you're looking for it. Look at John chapter 14 as Jesus prepares uh, his disciples for his leaving, for his departure. He says in John uh, chapter 14, verse 12, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, uh, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do. Watch this. Because I go to the Father. Because he goes to the Father. Look down at verse 28, the same chapter. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. See, he's already talking about going back to the Father. Flip the page, look at chapter 16, verse 10. And you have all these verses in your notes, so you don't need to worry about writing them down or anything. Um, he says, and concerning, uh, this is when, you know, when, when the Spirit comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe me, verse 10. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me. So there it is again. He's going to the Father. Uh, verse 17, same, um, same chapter there. Verse 17 of chapter 16. Some of his disciples therefore said to one another, What is this thing he's telling us? A little while, and you will not behold me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. 
uh, turn the page a couple pages to the right to chapter 20 of John and look at verse 17. Jesus said to her, this is, uh, let me set up the context here. We're not in the upper room anymore with the disciples. Now, uh, this is Mary seeing Jesus following the resurrection. You remember that? She's at the tomb. She's weeping. Uh, Jesus walks up behind her. She thinks he's the gardener. And they have a little conversation. And at some point, she figures out it's Jesus. And at that point, what does she do? She does what anybody would do if a loved one came back from the dead. She grabs on and gives him a hug. Verse 17, he says to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now he's more specific, isn't he? He's not just going to the Father, he's ascending to the Father. And and I I don't think he's saying, Mary, get off me, I don't want your hug. I don't think that's what he's saying. What he's saying is, Mary, this isn't the time for me to stay here. This is not the time for me... Uh, if we extend it out to set up my kingdom now, that I have to go back to the Father. Okay, I can't stay here now, is what I think he's saying there. And he says, so go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. So we see Jesus telling his followers that he has to go to his Father. That, that's a, that's a, a pointer to the ascension. Now, this is where it gets fun. Turn back to Matthew not, he's not just going back to his father, but there is a very special position. There is a very special seat, if you will, next to the father in heaven that Jesus will reside in. Matthew chapter 22, and we may not look up all of these, but the reason I'm giving you all these, I want you to see how this is all over your Bible if you're looking for it. That Jesus is going to go back to heaven, and he is going to reside at the right hand of the Father. Look at Matthew chapter 22, verse 44. It says uh, here, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Now what is that? What is that? That's a psalm. It's another messianic psalm it's another psalm that talks about jesus where where the 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 message of the psalm transcends the human author of the psalm be it david or somebody else and it actually points to and ultimately talks about someone who's to come in the future in this case the messiah jesus the lord said to my lord sit at my right hand until i put your enemies beneath your feet see long before jesus was ever even conceived but long before he was ever on the earth in the incarnation um, the psalmist tells us, God tells us through the psalm that there's coming a day when there's going to be a king that comes who will sit at the right hand of the father and all of God's enemies will be under this ruler's feet. And what's cool is, as you see Revelation unfold, you get more and more information about this king. That it's not just some guy who shows up, it's the son. It's God's son. So we see that in Matthew chapter 22. Flip the page to the right, Matthew chapter 26. Verse 64, some of you are flipping ahead there, and that's probably a good thing. Matthew chapter 26, verse 64. Listen to this. 
Jesus standing before the high priest, um, right before his uh, crucifixion, he says to him, You have said yourself, nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Oh my. You're the high priest. You're where the buck stops in the nation of Israel in terms of religion. You've got this, what you think is a traitor, a false messiah, someone who's going to upset the nation of Israel, and you're about ready to crucify him, and he says, oh, by the way, you're going to see me again after you kill me. And you know where you're going to see me? Sitting at the right hand of the Father, coming in the clouds in glory. Flip over to Acts chapter 2. And Acts actually gives us the account of the ascension in the first chapter there. And following the, the physical ascension, Peter gets up. You remember what happens? The ascension happens. The Spirit is given on the day of Pentecost. Uh, people come to know the Lord. And um, in the midst of all that, Peter gives this sermon where he explains what has just happened. He's explaining the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. Okay, He's explaining that to all these people that have gathered to figure out what's going on on the day of Pentecost. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 32. He says, This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Verse 33, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Talking about the Holy Spirit there. Okay. So as Peter explains what's going on, he says, well, where's Jesus? He's sitting at the right hand of the Father now. He has ascended back to his Father. Flip the page and look at chapter 5, verse 31. Chapter 5, verse 31 of the book of Acts. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, as Peter and the apostles answer uh, the leaders there that told them they were not allowed to preach Jesus anymore. He says, we can't do that. Jesus is the one. He's at the right hand of God. He is prince. He is savior. And he is the one who grants repentance to the nation of Israel. Look at chapter 7, verse 55. And all we're trying to do here... All we're trying to do is to see that all across the Bible we're seeing Jesus being talked about as being at the right hand of God. You remember Stephen, who was the first really martyr in Christianity as he was being stoned to death. Um, He says this, verse 55 of chapter 7, But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and he saw the glory of God. And who did he see with him? Jesus standing where? At his right hand. Standing at his right hand. Let's jump into the epistles now. Look at Romans chapter 8. And all of these are verses that you guys have read before. You no doubt know these verses. But it's showing us how from the beginning of God's plan, Jesus was going to come to the earth, become a man, stand in the place of sinners, die, rise from the dead, and then go back to that exalted position at the right hand of the Father. And then Paul's going to tell us in Philippians why that is. But look at Romans chapter 8, verse 34. He says, um, Who is the one who condemns? You know this. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the what? He's at the right hand of God. And what's he doing there, according to that verse? 
He's interceding. He's interceding. We see it in Colossians 3. We see it in 1 Peter 3. Uh, the last one we'll look at just for sake of time. Look at Hebrews chapter 1 with me. Hebrews chapter 1. We looked at this a few weeks ago, um, talking about uh, the incarnation. Hebrews chapter 1 says, God, after he, verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. Watch this. And when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Verse 4, having become a much better, having become as much better than angels as he has inherited a more excellent name. Remember that. He inherited a more excellent name than they. For which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall, he shall be a son to me. Those are both going back to sections in the Old Testament, prophecies about the Messiah. Verse 6, And when he came, again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels he said, Who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? Verse 8, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom, and you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. What's he saying? Here's here's Keith's easy version. Jesus is better than the angels because the angels bow down and worship him. One of the reasons that Jesus is better than the angels, verse, according to verse 8, is the angels don't get the throne. Jesus gets the throne. And that sets up, if you head back to Philippians now, what Paul wants to talk to us about as he tells us about the Father's response to the incarnation, to the kenosis. Okay? At the ascension, the Father restores Jesus' exalted position at the Father's right hand. We see the verses that talk about Jesus going to his Father. We've seen some of the verses that talk about Jesus going and sitting at the right hand of the Father. What's all that about? Look at what it says. What does the Father do when he exalts his Son and he comes back to heaven? What does he do? He bestows upon him Jesus, the name which is above every name. What is that? You say his name's not Jesus anymore? No, no, his name's always been Jesus. What is the name that is above every name? What is the name? It, 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 yes, but, but he comes back and the Father grants him, we might say, a title. And you know what the title is? Lord. This Jesus whom you crucified, this Jesus that humbled himself, became a slave, became a man, killed as a common criminal, walked around poor and humble, he comes to the right, to the right hand of the Father, he, he ascends back to heaven, God exalts him, 
He sits at the right hand, the restoration of that exalted position, and the Father says, This Jesus whom you crucified is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the master of the universe. We don't have time to go here, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2, Paul says that God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And what a message that a crucified Savior, that the exalted God becomes a humble slave in order to save humanity from their sins. And then he is resurrected, goes back to heaven, and you know who he is? He is the Lord of the universe. He is the one I'm getting ahead of myself. He is the one that every knee will bow to one day. He is master. He is Lord. He is sovereign. He's the boss. That's what he was doing. And and you don't need to turn there, but just just listen to Ephesians. Okay, that that big, long, run-on sentence that Paul gives us in chapter 1 about God and Christ. Just, Just listen, okay? Listen and catch this, okay? It says um, in, uh, I'll start in verse 15 of Ephesians 1. For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now listen to Paul's prayer, okay? I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the workings of the strength of his might. Okay, now here's the part you need to to listen to real closely. These are in according with the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, listen, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So Paul says in Ephesians, the power of the Father is seen in him raising Jesus from the dead, seating him at that right-hand position so that, did you catch it? His name is above every name. Verse 22, and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and is all. So back to our notes here. And he bestowed on him the name which is above every name. What that means is, though Jesus has always been God and always been Lord, I mean, he, he didn't become the Lord at the ascension. You understand that, right? He's always been the Lord. But here's the thing. He was not fully revealed as the Lord and Master of the universe until the ascension. See, this whole thing is progressive. We read those Psalms and they talk about the Son coming and Him being the King and, and God and the Messiah coming and then the Gospels roll in and here's Jesus, the God-man. He walks around on earth. He does miracles and He makes it obvious that He is God. And then He goes to the cross, dying in the place of sinners. But that couldn't keep Him there. He rises from the dead showing that He conquers sin. He conquers death and He accomplishes the atonement that He came to bring. And then God raises Him from the dead. He ascends to the Father to that exalted position. All that is progressive so that at the end of it we say, 
my Savior is also my Lord. Jesus is not just a a benign Savior that I accept into my heart. He's just my friend. I mean, He is those things. But He's our Master. He's our Lord. Following Him means that we voluntarily bow the knee to King Jesus. And we do it now. We, we, we do it before His kingdom fully comes. We do it now. See, he, he has not been fully revealed as the Lord and Master until now, but now He is. But now He is. So what does that all mean? Paul continues, so that at the name of Jesus, here it is, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Do you know that? There is coming a day when the most blasphemous person, when the most committed atheist, when the most radical other religious person, the most adamant um, person opposing Christianity will bow their knee to Jesus and they will confess that He really is Lord and Sovereign and Master of the universe. That day is coming. I love what C.S. Lewis says about that. He said, um, in the context of you need to repent now, that's what Lewis was talking about in mere Christianity, he says, um, you don't want to wait till Jesus shows up to do that. Because he says, and and I remember this quote, I probably read it when I was 19. He says, there's not a whole lot of use in saying you will lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. So when Jesus comes, (laughs) every knee is bowing. Every tongue is confessing. It is impossible to do otherwise. But at that point, and this was Lewis's point in mere Christianity, it's too late. The ascension reminds us that now is the time to bow the knee to Jesus. Now is the time to confess. Because when he shows up, it's too late. We're we're out of time, but you can look up these on your own time. But just look at this. Who will bow the knee? Who will confess with their tongue? Revelation 4 says angels will do that. Uh, Romans 10, 9, you guys know that. What's Romans 10, 9, and 10? You guys know this, right? If you confess with your mouth, Jesus as, Jesus as what? Say it louder, his what? He's Lord. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So angels will bow the knee and confess with their tongue. Believers do that now. Right? That's what it means to be a Christian. We've done that now. We're, we, we don't walk around on our feet. We walk around, as it were, on our knees, bowing to King Jesus. We follow Him, bowing and confessing. Second Thessalonians says, you know what? God is sovereign even over unbelievers. And unbelievers will bow and they will confess, but it will be too late for them. And even demons and eternally judged peoples, I wish we had time to look that up because that's a really cool verse. James 2 tells us that demons already have good theology. They know who Jesus is. They're just rebellious and they refuse to submit to him. But you know what? There's a day when they will. And we actually we see a preview of that because in the Gospels, occasionally Jesus was imposed that authority on the demons. And guess what? They would obey him. 
So that what we see, guys, is at the end of all of this, at the judgment seat of Christ, when, when all of this comes to an end at the second coming, the totality of the known universe will bow the knee and declare with their tongues that Jesus is Lord and Master of all. And on that day, I want you to see this, on that day, when every knee bows, when every tongue confesses, when everybody, as it were, submits to Jesus, King Jesus, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, there will be a glorifying of the Father as has not been seen thus far. And that's the point. The point of the incarnation, the point of the resurrection, the point of the ascension, the point of the kenosis. You see, all of these are are mechanics of salvation. Jesus had to do that in order to save us from our sins. Yes, he did. But even that salvation is not the end. Even the reconciliation of people to God is not God's ultimate end. His ultimate end is to bring himself maximum glory, to make himself known in all of his splendor, in all of his radiance. And on that day, and and can you picture that? On the day when we gather around the throne of God in heaven, when we join Moses and Abraham and Job and Noah and Paul, and we bow before him together, and the glory that God will get in that moment. Do you guys know anybody that you'd like to be there with you? That's why, we'll st- that's why we're still here. So let's go preach King Jesus to the people that need to hear it. Let's pray. Father, it's hard to picture that day. when your glory is undiluted and unattenuated, when it is fully seen, when we have eyes to fully see it, when we have voices to express full praise that you deserve, when we have bodies that will be perfectly holy to live in a way that brings you maximum glory, when we have minds to fully understand the depth of the riches of your wisdom and knowledge, and when we get to see our Savior. Father, it's amazing to think about the gospel that you would send your Son to be in our place, to be a slave, to be a worm, to be the lowliest of the lowly, to do what we could not do, to demonstrate your love, to gather a people that would submit to you, that would follow you, that would love you, so that at the end of it all, there would be a spectrum of glory that the world has never seen because they see you in all of your awesome splendor and radiance and glory. Father, we look forward to that day. We long for that day. But we're here, Father, because there are people we want to join us. 
And they will bow the knee on that day too, but not in your presence, but outside of your presence. They will bow the knee. They will confess the tongue, blaspheming under their breath, eternally judged. Father, some of us are ministering to family this week that don't know you. Some of us have neighbors across the street. We have friends. We have children. We have people we run into in town. Lord, give us... Give us a perspective to understand how weighty this message is and how significant the consequences are. And might that motivate us, not just out of compassion for them, but that you would receive maximum glory in a host of believers. Father, we have work to do. Would you commission us this day, encourage our hearts, Help us to keep these things in mind and not get distracted by things that don't matter. That your name might be honored supremely in Jesus' name. Amen.